I do want to welcome each one of you today. I, I'm so glad you chose to come here for Father's Day. I do want to honor all of you dads. I, I, I don't think that's an easy road. I, I just don't. And I want to encourage you to learn from God. I would like to say thank you for investing in your kids one life at a time and, and for walking with God and for making him your priority. Now, granted, we've all been, well, disappointed with our dads. And even if you're a dad, you've been disappointed at times. But we have an amazing Heavenly Father who is able to, well, encourage and strengthen each one of us on this journey in spite of, at times, some poor choices. We've been in the biblical book of Acts. Acts is in the New Testament. Acts is in the Bible. And the Bible is the story of God. It's about God, the Father, who loved us and showed us how to love others sacrificially. It's about God the Son who paid the debt for our rebellion. And it's about God the Holy Spirit who teaches and convicts. And ever since Pentecost lives in every believer and faithfully changes them into the image of Jesus. Jesus gave the church its mission and told the church to make disciples. Acts tells us how it all began in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and into all of the world. We're in chapter 17, where Paul is on a second missionary adventure and finds himself roaming about the historic city of Athens by observing how Paul evangelized this influential city, we find some important lessons for the church about engaging everyone, everywhere with the gospel. Now, it is sad that some Christians and even churches don't have stellar reputations. But it's so encouraging that God chose us to partner with him and to be the change agents in our world. So before we open up Acts chapter 17, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we would ask again that you would open up our eyes. The early church was just that. It is a group of people that you moved in mightily. And literally, God, they changed the world. They went through tough days. They went through tough times. They suffered greatly. But Lord, they are so inspiring because they were faithful to you. They started churches everywhere. Churches that grew and churches that evangelized. And God, we want that. We want to represent you well wherever we go. 
We know we have things to learn, and we know we have areas that you'd like to change in us. And so we ask that you would begin to do that today, that you would use your word and that you would use your spirit, and that we would leave here different people. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your faithfulness, Father. And we know that we are not the only church who is preaching and teaching your word today who are worshiping you. So we pray today for Emmanuel and for Chain of Lakes and for redemption. And Lord, there's many more. There's, there's churches all over in Lake County and, and in Illinois and all over this planet. So God, would you empower your church? Would you use your word? Would you receive the praise of your saints? God, would you move in us today? We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We even thank you again, Father, that we can meet today. And we can gather as a community. There are so many things we don't take granted for granted anymore. So we pray, dear God, that you would use this time together, whether folks are online or whether they're right here in the house, we ask you, God, to work. And we pray this in your name, your precious son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, last week, if you're with us, we found that Paul left both Thessalonica and Berea rather quickly. And he ended up in a place called Athens. Athens, at least by name, is familiar almost to everybody. But when Paul was there, Athens had already passed its golden age. It was still, though, pretty impressive and a beautiful city when Paul visited it. Paul was an evangelist and a church planner. His eyes were probably as wide as saucers as he explored the city. But his mind had to be racing. Would anybody here in this metropolis, the birthplace of pagan Greek philosophy. Would anybody welcome God's divine revelation? Well, let's look. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start reading at verse 16. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen right behind me. Acts 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for them, remember he had sent instructions back to Paul or, or to Silas and Timothy, and, and he asked them to join him in Athens. So while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all those who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? And others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. 
It wasn't the history, the architecture, or the beauty of Athens that first struck Paul. It was the rampant idolatry that troubled him. He looked at the city with a Christian perspective through redeemed eyes. Many of you know that when people come to faith, the scriptures tell us that they become brand new creations, which absolutely changes the way you think and, of course, even the way you see things around you in our culture. We as Christians enjoy many of the same things that our unredeemed neighbors enjoy, but we look at it through a different set of lenses. We see entertainment and the arts differently. We listen to music and read books differently. We think about sports and homes and cars differently. We view our jobs and businesses differently. We see the poor and the orphan and the widow differently. We view the ocean and the skies and hear the birds differently. We look at sex and marriage and family differently. We see our funds and our calendars differently. We observe the government and the leadership differently. We view food and drink differently and even see death differently. You see, our world is filled with idols, things that people worship or adore other than God. Yet most of us have learned that worshiping anything other than God is a short-term fix and leaves you completely empty and unfulfilled. Idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and the living God in human hearts. Idols can be the need for peer approval, the relentless pursuit of power or success or money, the drive for sex or pleasure or food, or the all-consuming allegiance to a sports team, or the pursuit of an education. It is foolish to pursue false gods. But we get a buzz, and, and we get excited at least for a short time. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 16, verse 4. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. So Paul, in our scripture, was troubled. He was troubled. And this is so interesting how he responded. But he was vexed by all the idols and probably even as he looked around the gigantic temples to these gods. Now, sometimes in your scripture, this word is translated angry rather than troubled or even riled up. But I got to be honest with you, I think that paints the wrong picture. I think this word is better understood as sadly vexed. And let me try to explain. 
Paul is not responding harshly here, walking around the city. How dare you? Look at all these idols. How evil are you? What is wrong with you? Don't you know that? He actually didn't have that attitude, all right? His response feels more like a broken and tender sigh. This is really important as we move forward. So I'm hoping you you see this. His, his comment was almost like, oh, you, you Athenians, you're, you're missing out. I, I see all these idols. I see those sacrifices. I see those giant temples, and it rips my heart out. You don't understand. You're doing religion when God wants a relationship. I am sure that Paul experienced a mixture of righteous indignation for the name of God, because he ought to be worshipped, and broken-hearted compassion for the people who worshipped false gods. Now reflect on this just for a moment. Paul when he walked through this extremely pagan culture, was motivated by the love of God and the love for his neighbor. Rather than viewing Athens from the perspective of a tourist, he saw a lost city scrambling to find the right God, yet doomed to a Christless eternity. I think Paul's heart comes out. He just wanted them to see Jesus. He just wanted them to know Jesus, his God. That absolutely changed all of his life. He desired that deeply. Now, last week, we learned about reasoning. In Athens, you see the same word here in our text, that Paul reasoned with both the religious... And I would say this, those who have a God bent. And he also reasoned with the secular, those without a God bent. He listened, then he debated. He responded. He tried to understand their world. The scriptures tell us that he entered Athens public square. Now, Basically, in your history books, this would be called the Agora. The Agora would be very unique. It would include government stations, schools, philosophers, religious activities, and even markets, clothing, and for food. We don't have anything in our Western world that looks like this. One thing for sure is, though, is not much Christian influence was around. He went into a territory where not a whole lot of people, people understood about Jesus at all. So here, there were Epicureans, or we would probably call them hedonists. They were pleasure seekers, folks who loved to live it up. And then there were the Stoics. These philosophers felt that denying their emotions pleased the gods. So they tried to repress or suppress 
all, anything that made them happy. Simply put, Paul engaged with two kinds of people. Ones who were less cautious and seemed to live it up, and other ones who are a little bit more cautious, cerebral, and reflective. Now, we probably lean one way or the other, even right here, and probably our neighbors and the folks we work with, they lean one way or the other, whether they know Jesus or not. But what's so exciting is that the apostle Peter, he had a heart for the lost too. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15, he writes this, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do it in a gentle and a respectful way. We're going to find out as we dig in here that we're going to admire and seek to imitate Paul's flexibility and range in evangelism. America is a nation filled with great spiritual diversity. But it's interesting how folks who thought so different than Paul still were Paul's concern. Again, I'm going to keep going back to that. Sometimes we as God followers, we only want to meet and stay and gather with folks that think exactly like us. We feel safe. Those are the parties we want to go to, and those are the gatherings we love hanging out at. We get very intimidated at times being with people that think differently than we do, act differently than we do, and we almost even at times judge them, put them in categories, thinking that maybe, well, you would have nothing to offer them. We know this for sure in this text that Paul talked about Jesus and his resurrection. And that their words, the people's words, after Paul talked about it, they weren't very flattering, just so you know. But what was so cool, Paul was able to share. They didn't think too highly of them, but they wanted more. Oh, that got me excited as I was reading this text. How is it, God, that I'm going to be able to represent you well? My reputation may fade with those that don't know Jesus, but would they be thirsty? Would they want more? I think Paul walked in the Spirit, so his presentation, his interaction made others thirsty for God. And I had to stop. Does my interaction with my neighbor, does my interaction with those that don't think the same way I think, whether it be on the internet or personally, does my interaction make people thirsty to want to know Jesus? thirsty to want to have a relationship with God the way I have a relationship with God? Or is it, whoa, I don't want your Jesus. 
<laughs> You're so persnickety. You're so crabby. You're so ornery. You're so self-righteous. Wow. Maybe there are going to be times like that, but, but what's so exciting about this text is that wasn't necessarily these folks' response to the Apostle Paul. So, let's look at verse 19. Paul is taken to the high council and given a chance to share. Verse 19. Again, you can follow up on the screen. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know more about it. <laughs> In parentheses. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them in fo as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. Interesting, he didn't condemn that at this moment. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So, so Paul gets invited to a bunch of folks just uh, more thirsty. Come and tell us about this new teaching. Paul interacted with the not yet redeemed before presenting God's truths. Remember, he was walking around the city. He was learning the culture. And when he did, the scriptures tell us he noticed an altar dedicated to an unknown God. In this case, the apostles showed interest in their lives, in their culture. I call it he was earning the right to be heard. He was asking about them personally. He was noticing things around the area. Then he introduces the Athenians to the unknown God. Perhaps it even went like this. Hey guys, as I was walking around your fine town, one of your many altars caught my eye. It was the altar to an unknown God. You know, I think I'd like to share with you about this unknown God. You see, I have a relationship with him, and I read about him in the Holy Scriptures. There is no God like this God. Now, Paul, in the back of his mind, all the way through the Old Testament, you would read texts like Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, a text that Moses spit out after he walked through the Red Sea. He said this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing such great wonders? You read at the end of Job, and chapter after chapter after chapter, Job just hears God talk about himself. How amazing, how big, how wonderful, how loving. So Paul talked about God. 
probably like you and I would talk about a friend. Let's look. Verse 24. This is Paul's remarks to this group. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Isn't that great? He's talking about God's sovereignty, right, with these folks. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not very far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. He starts off just saying, hey, I, I just want you to know, this unknown God, I, I know this God. He's the God who made the world. He is the Lord of the heaven and the earth. So many times, the best place, the best starting place for evangelizing those that don't know God is to be able to share about God, especially the person behind creation. Because all of creation in Psalm 19 tells us points to God. His beauty, the details, his consistency. How cool is it to talk about nature? To look at the grandeur of the mountains. To just expect the sun to be able to rise every day. To have the earth absolutely perfect in the perfect way at the perfect degree and the closeness to the sun so that we don't fry or maybe just a tad further back and we would all freeze. This is the God that Paul is describing. And he says, this God can't be contained in temples. This God doesn't have any needs. All of your gods do. My God is the giver of life. He sustains all life. He continues life. God not only created all the nations, all the peoples of the world, but He's king. He rules over them. He controls them. In fact, He hopes all nations, all people come and seek Him because God alone is the only one who gives life. These folks have never heard this message. And he ends up and he goes, so God is not something that a craftsman can put together. God can't be made of stone or gold or silver. God is so much bigger and God is so much more involved and God desires deeply that you would know him. At this point, Paul finishes really strong. Look at verse 30. He's on a roll. They're listening. He's checking this out. And he says this. 
God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now, if you circle again or underline your Bible, I would hit that one. But now, now, today, he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice for the man he has appointed. And he has proved everyone, to everyone, who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, they laughed in contempt. But there were others, and and they said, we want to hear more about this. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. God overlooked your past interest, ignorance, but no more. Now, I got to tell you, the translation here can be misleading. And in almost all of your translations, this word is translated overlooked. And so we might get the idea, well, in times past, God was kind of soft on sin. He really didn't expect repentance in the past. And, And that's not what Paul is saying here. Christ's sacrificial death brought about a change in the way God deals with man's ignorance. God clearly expects all of mankind to repent if they want to be saved from sin's penalty and power and presence. If you don't want to pay the debt for your sin, you need Jesus. If you want to experience power over sin's authority, which always brings death in our present world, you need Jesus. And if you expect to live in eternity without the presence of sin, in unbelievable glory, you need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Jesus. You need to repent. Now, we don't have a lot of Paul's message here. We we don't know how he dug in here. We don't. But we know biblical repentance means an about face in your thinking. You no longer think that you can please God by your own good deeds and your own works. The only way you can have a relationship with Jesus is by putting your faith in Christ's work. He's the one who shed his blood. He's the one that died in your place and my place. And he is the one, when we put our faith in him, calls us a son or a daughter. (laughs) That is exciting. That is amazing. Remember, even back in Acts chapter 4, when this church was just blossoming in Jerusalem, the apostles' message was really clear there. There's salvation found nowhere but Jesus. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men that we can be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. 
Then what's really interesting is that Paul boldly ends with maybe some lines none of us have ever used because we might be afraid. But he says this, the resurrected Jesus will bring justice and judge everyone who hasn't repented. Paul, do you, do you understand these are the big cheeses? Paul, do you understand these are the authorities? Paul, do you recognize that, that um, they may not like this part of the gospel? But Paul said the perfect resurrected judge will someday judge everyone. And my encouragement is this. There are times that the Holy Spirit will prompt you if you're walking with Him when you talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus and you let them know that someday they will stand before the Almighty God. Oh, Rick, that will wreck their whole image of God. No, no, actually it won't. It's something, again, if you don't know people and you're on a street corner and you're shouting, repent, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. Uh, okay, maybe that message isn't so well received. We've all seen it, haven't you? Gone downtown and, and oh man, you got a lot of guts, dude. But I'm just not so sure that's how you love others well. So the message is there. And the scriptures tell us this, that this talk of resurrection divided the crowds. This little talk of, well, are you telling me Jesus rose from the dead? Now, mind you, this isn't too long after. So this talk was around. But the Bible says there were two responses. One, they laughed you're crazy. I, I was with you up until now. Maybe that judgment thing worried me a little bit. But if you're going to keep pinning this whole thing on a resurrected Savior, Messiah, I'm, I, I, you're crazy. Others, though, were interested, the Scriptures say, and wanted more. Well, we don't know much more about that. But interesting, at this moment, the resurrection said it ended all the discussion, ended all the reasoning, ended all the debate. Okay, so there are times that you share your hope and things just stop. But look at the last part of this text. But some did respond. We don't really know how many, but there was a council member, a woman, and others. I think Dr. Luke mentions a council a political figure and a woman because it was so unusual at this moment. But others, who, who knows how many others? But I love it because some responded to the gospel. You know, last week I had an opportunity to spend a couple days up at Silver Birch. And I was in one of the chapel services and at the end of the chapel service, with, with the chapel jammed, there were about 50 kids that responded to the gospel. I, I just got goosebumps. 
Do I think every one of those kids understood completely? No, I don't. I don't. But they went back and they talked with counselors. And they're able to talk about their eternal salvation. It was so exciting. And I got to believe right here, Paul had goosebumps. Some responded. They didn't all. Some were thirsty. Maybe later, some laughed. Oh God, you can still work in them. This is a great story today. A story about evangelism. A story about engaging lost people with the gospel. It's inspiring to me. It's convicting to me. But the truth is, as we talk about evangelism, as we talk about sharing good news, evangelism scares most of us. But I also want you to know that evangelism is part of our God-given mission of making disciples. The assignment that Jesus gave his church, his church 2,000 years ago and his church today. And evangelism right now, it comes in two steps. And we're going to just, again, try to make it simple. But step one is sharing your story and leading people to Jesus. Letting people know who your God is. How much he's changed your life. And how he is your savior. And to encourage people to trust Christ is Savior. Step number two, once they respond, help them grow. Help them multiply. Help them understand the great privilege that we have. Get them involved in a group. Encourage them, meet with them, model for them, serve with them. You see, I think Paul modeled both steps well here. I I do. But focused on the evangelism part especially. Listen. Listen to what he did. And might might we consider doing what Paul did? He had a relationship with God. There's no doubt he spent time with God. He listened to God. He was absolutely enamored with God. I I think the first part in any kind of evangelism explosion is making sure that your relationship with God is good. Many of us don't talk about Jesus because he's not that real to us. Many of us don't talk about God because we put them in a box. One of the things each one of us could do is just spend time with God. Let Him change us from the inside. And then evangelism is different. He observed his world around him. It broke his heart. He took time to enter the not yet redeemed world. He saw the pain. He saw the scrambling. He recognized that people out there were trying to get their lives together without God. We're worshiping the wrong things. And so many times... 
we can get pretty critical right there. We can start beating up people. But I think what's so cool is that Paul loved people. He was sad and it broke their hearts when they were making poor choices, when they were trying to find fulfillment without God. How different would that be as you approach a neighbor and share the good news of the gospel that changed your life? Paul talked to them about God. He knew God. It was his friend, his judge, and his Savior. But you know what's exciting is not everybody does respond. That's not the exciting part. The exciting part is that some do respond. When when is the last time you led someone to the Lord? When is the last time you had a discussion with somebody about your wonderful Savior? When is the last time that you cried over somebody's soul because they don't know Him? This is the call that God's given each one of us who know Jesus. This is God's plan. Believe it or not, it's us. Every one of us. It's this church. It's the church around the corner. It's God's people. Sharing good news and making disciples. You see, the mission is unfinished. It's the title of the book of Acts. God has given each one of us a privilege to be salt and light. I love this text. Paul taught me so much. May God encourage you. May God inspire you. May may God convict you because the Christian life's an adventure. And we get to make a splash in this pool of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do. We thank you, first of all, for salvation. We're not sure why we were chosen. We don't. But God, we do know this is that all those who are part of your family have an unbelievable privilege to be able to be salt and light in this world, to infiltrate, to care and love people, and be able to point them to the only one worthy of worship. Oh God, we have worshipped you today. We are planning to continue to worship you are a great God. Thank you for walking with us. Thank you for changing our lives. May we be bold at the right time. May we be courageous at the right time. And may we know you better so that that knowledge just erupts because of how gracious and wonderful and amazing you are. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.